to uh, welcome Dr. Laura Jacobson. She's a pediatric endocrinologist at University of Florida in Gainesville, and she's going to talk to us about <clears throat> emerging biomarkers of response to immunotherapies. And um, just a quick little bio sketch for her. Um, as a physician scientist and a pediatric endocrinologist at University of Florida, her research focuses on one, understanding the role of the immune system in type 1 diabetes, and two, improving clinical care and health outcomes for people with type 1 diabetes. Major facet of both of these re research foci is the conduct of immunotherapy um, clinical trials in those with type 1 diabetes and individuals who are at risk for type 1 diabetes. She has an interest in mechanisms of action of these therapies, as well as biomarkers of efficacy and identification of clinical responders. She's also very proud to serve as an investigator for the type 1 diabetes trial net, um, the uh, TEDDY study, the, or otherwise known as the Environmental Determinants of Diabetes in the Young, the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes, or the NPOD program, and the Type 1 Diabetes Exchange of Q1 Collaborative. Uh, through these national and international collaborations, she's been able to study predictors of disease, the role of innate and adaptive immune system, particularly in response to immunotherapy, and other methodologies to improve health outcomes for patients with T1D. She also serves as the Associate Fellowship Program Director for the UF Pediatric Endocrinology Fellowship Program, and she values the opportunity to train future generations. Amazing contribution. Thank you very much for all you're doing at this you know, um, critical stage of type one diabetes um, discovery. Um, and thanks ag again for joining us. Um, so take it away. Yeah, thank you very much, Monica. I appreciate the opportunity to share with you some work that I've been doing and and also kind of summarizing the, the body of literature by amazing uh, researchers across the country. So what I'm gonna be talking about today are how we can identify responders. And I'll talk about what that means um, with type 1 diabetes or people who are at risk for type 1 diabetes when they receive an immune therapy. I have nothing to disclose. And I like to start um, by talking about a hypothetical patient. So this is Sam. He's a 15-year-old young man diagnosed with type 1 diabetes just a week ago. And he's coming into clinic today with his family for a clinic visit with his diabetes care team. So we all know that as part of a typical early diabetes care visit, you're gonna talk about the day-to-day -day behaviors that are required to manage diabetes. You wanna start talking early about the, the burden and the challenges that can go along with a diagnosis like type one. So you can um, work on preventing and maintaining adequate mental health. And at the same time, we talk very, very early about the use of technologies to try and reduce that burden. And that includes continuous glucose monitors, pumps, and especially hybrid closed loops that have come out. But what I would like to propose and what I envision for the future is that at those, this very early visit, you know, a week after diagnosis, we could be also talking to this family about the potential immune therapies that may benefit this particular patient and which one may be best for him specifically based on uh, biomarker testing that can be done. So if we knew that a specific immune therapy would help prolong his beta cell function for a little bit longer, I think we could get um, improved outcomes and maybe even uh, extended time without that intense burden of type one diabetes that we know is going to develop with time. So I'm going to talk I, a little bit about can that. I, can I ask a quick question here? Yeah. What is the feeling in the field about doing um, you know, a genetic screen at this point, is, is that part of the plan to, you know, kind of create the tailored immune therapy? 
So genetic screening is not, in my opinion, likely to be the highest yield, but I think we need to kind of validate that. So I'll go through some of what those different either immune uh, testing or genetic testing, or even just looking at, at age and um, maybe other general predictors that might identify right. which therapy would be best. Um, so I, I think it'll end up being a combination of things that might give us the highest yield. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So basically with this talk, I just want to take us on a, a short journey towards why I see the role of biomarker development um, as such an uh, important aspect for developing personalized T1D um, medicine, especially with regard to immune therapy. So we'll talk about challenges, how we define responders, and then what biomarkers have been coming out in these clinical trials that we can hope to continue to move forward. So briefly, why am I talking about immune therapies? You know, there's lots of different ways to manage type 1 diabetes. And we all know insulin, unfortunately, is the, the mainstay of therapy until we have something better that can replace it. Um, but immune therapies are an important aspect early in the disease process. And the reason I say that is because we've had several immune therapies in the clinical trial realm that have shown a meaningful interdiction in this loss of C-peptide that occurs after diagnosis and was occurring before diagnosis. So I show some, just a few of those examples of successful trials on the right here in kind of a mechanistic picture. Um, and all of these therapies have shown to preserve C-peptide while they're being administered in people with new onset type one diabetes specific to this figure when they're compared to placebo, people who didn't get those therapies. Now these uh, beneficial effects are transient, meaning they've not, they're not continuing to last, um, but I still call them meaningful. So the reason I still call a transient effect meaningful is because these therapies have been shown clinically to prolong the partial remission period or the honeymoon period. And while that may not seem like a lot, it actually has an enormous value from studies we've done in the past. So if you have a prolonged honeymoon period, you have more time with lower insulin requirements, less glycemic variability, and in general, an easier time achieving those glycemic targets because of that decreased variability when you still have some endogenous insulin being produced. And we know from the diabetes control and complications trial that the longer you can have preserved C-peptide, the lower the risk of both acute and long-term complications, such as severe hypoglycemia in the short term and microvascular complications in the long term. So another reason why I think immune therapies are important for us to think about hopefully incorporating more into this uh, early type one diabetes period is because immune ther therapies have been used for decades um, to manage other autoimmune diseases. Even in very young children, we have data on their safety profiles and how they've been used and how they've been tolerated. Also, other autoimmune diseases, the majority of them are treated with immune therapies. And type 1 diabetes, we don't want to forget, is an autoimmune disease. So it does fall under this category that may benefit. Um, and finally, because type 1 diabetes is so complex, the dysregulated immune system is so many aspects are involved. And we can't biopsy the pancreas easily to, to really uh, accelerate our progress towards understanding this disease, we wanna have multiple uh, targets to attack and try and figure out how to calm this dysregulated immune system. And that's what immune therapies do because there are many different uh, classes of immune therapies available. 
So the field's been conducting immune therapy clinical trials in type one diabetes for the last 35 years. So 35 years ago, we started doing, and by we, I mean the field in general, um, immune therapy trials. And so 35 years, we should have this problem solved. We should be using immune therapies every day um, in our clinical care. But there are a lot of challenges and barriers to that that I show on this slide, which is helps us understand why we are not at that point yet and what things we can try and do to get there. Um, so the biggest challenge um, with type 1 diabetes in general is that it's very heterogeneous. So the immunopathogenesis of type 1 diabetes has multiple different uh, arcs. Uh, the genetic susceptibility to type 1 is very different um, between individuals. The rate of progression to complete C-peptide loss is very different. And then you also add in puberty and insulin resistance and all of these things make it really hard to find one therapy or one mechanism that's, that's going to be the best to pursue. So that kind of is one of the reasons this has taken a while. Um, next, we also don't always, and I think we're getting better as a field, we don't always take into account the role of the beta cell in this process. So we know there's dysregulated immune system, but we also don't know what role the beta, beta cell has in its own demise and the stress of the beta cell that may also be contributing to it not working efficiently. Um, so at the same time that we are testing immune therapies to augment the immune system, we need to be combining those um, as able with beta cell protective therapies that may also calm down some of that endoplasmic reticulum stress and other things that a lot of great researchers are, are really studying a lot right now. And then third in our Use of immune therapies right now, it's just in clinical trials outside of the exciting um, teplizumab prevention study that's just uh, recently got FDA approval. But in general, we're doing this in clinical trials and it's always good to kind of reevaluate are the endpoints or the outcome measures we're using, are they the most effective? It takes a long time to do clinical trials, especially prevention trials where you're waiting for a certain number of people to progress and develop the disease. Um, and it takes a lot of time and money to do this. So are there other measures that maybe would allow us to have a beneficial effect, but over a shorter time period than looking maybe at C-peptide or, or the development of type one diabetes, depending on what kind of trial it was. So finally here in the bottom right, I show what the, the main crux of I'm gonna talk about today is, is how are biomarkers still a challenge? One of the reasons is how we define who responds to a trial is still, variable. We don't have good consensus on the definition yet, and we are still working to validate peripheral blood biomarkers that could help us identify which group of individuals will respond best versus which group of individuals may not respond best. Um, so that is an active area that I think is making a lot of progress right now. And I think as we're working on all of these other areas, we want to keep pushing forward with biomarker development so that when we are ready to take more immune therapies to clinical care, we are able to direct those therapies to the, the patient that is going to respond the best and thus can really counsel on the risks of side effects and, and those things. It really seems like the development of the biomarkers is, you know, sets the stage for everything else to really function properly in terms of, you know, druggable targets. Yeah, I, I like to think that, but I'm sure each person's uh, passion <laughs> would probably drive, drive that answer. Um, yeah. I just think it's something we shouldn't wait till we have seven therapies approved to do. 
Um, you know, if we, if we want to get an effective drug through a clinical trial, having a, an effective way to enroll uh, the precise population will help us get a bigger, um, you know, effect size. So I think, I think they're all interrelated and we shouldn't yes. ignore any of those challenges. <laughs> um, and clinicians sometimes may, may ask, well, why, why should we care again, just furthering the conversation we were just having about, about biomarker development, let's just pick an immune therapy and, and try that out. So that's what this figure, which is actually from the juvenile idiopathic arthritis literature, um, they depicted it really well. And I liked, cause I think there's a lot of crossovers between JIA and type one diabetes. Um, but what they show at the top is kind of that trial and error. I'm just going to pick a, a first line immune therapy, you know, at the time of, of diagnosis of arthritis in children and then see what happens. But you can see from the dark purple line that over time, you may not be picking the right therapy just by luck. Um, and at some point you're going to reach a, a level of irreversible damage, which in our field is, you know, complete or almost complete loss of beta cell function. So we really don't want to just be wasting time in that new onset or early type one diabetes period, trying different, um, things. If we could have a biomarker driven approach, um, instead of this trial and error approach. So if we could say, I think, you know, looking for X, Y, or Z biomarker when you're newly diagnosed. Um, and if we're diagnosed even earlier and earlier based on um, studies people are doing on identifying, you know, fast progressors and slow progressors to type one, that could really help us pick the right time and the right therapy for a patient to prolong that remission phase or have multiple remission phases even if we're assessing how a therapy is over time. Um, so I think really this, like I said, as we're getting therapies approved for clinical use, this needs to be in our mind um, to really get the most bang for our buck with these uh, therapies. So now that I've hopefully convinced you that this is a noble venture to be working on bi biomarker development, let's talk about the actual concept of responders. So what do we mean when we say clinical responders? So this is a, um, a very clear graphic that I like from the ABATE trial, which is a new onset type one diabetes trial testing teplizumab. And I like it because it shows on the x-axis, um, I'll show some more figures like this, the study duration, and on the y-axis, the um, C-peptide that's being produced by the participants in the trial, um, usually as the area under the curve, C-peptide. And you can see there are three different uh, uh, arms or different uh, lines on this graph. Both the participants in the red line and the green line both got the drug. They both got teplizumab, whereas people in the control arm in this particular example were just monitored. They did not receive the drug. You can clearly see there are a group of people in that red line who respond excellently, but there are people who also got the drug who look just like responders. They had no benefit from that therapy. We want to know ahead of time who those people are so that we can say, well, maybe you shouldn't get X drug, you should get Y drug instead. Um, and even this trial, if you combine the red and the green together, it still was a positive clinical trial. So just imagine if we could have really enriched that population for who was going to respond the best, it would be just a very dramatic effect that would help us push through these regulatory hurdles that we sometimes experience. Yeah. It's powerful when you're trying to get through those uh, regulatory hurdles, I think. Yes. So we want to make it as uh, pleasing to the FDA as we can. Um, and we also want to 
I want patients to avoid side effects if I don't think a drug's going to benefit them. Um, but how are we doing defining this group of responders right now? Well, unfortunately, it's kind of all over the place. Every trial does it a little bit differently, and we haven't agreed yet on a um, consistent definition, but they all are basically looking at how much C-peptide do you make over the course of the trial? So is it that you only lose a certain amount, a percentage of C-peptide, or that the rate of fall of your C-peptide is above you know, the average or the median for the group? Um, or is the rate of C-peptide at least above what all the people in the placebo group are making? So while all the definitions are different, they're, they're similar in that they are preserving more C-peptide than others in the trial, um, but they're mostly arbitrary cutoffs. Um, and you can see by looking at this example from another clinical trial on the right, where it shows individual participants um, C-peptide data just change from baseline, and it's all over the place. There's a lot of heterogeneity in response so we just would like to, going forward, be using the same definition. Um, I propose uh, one that uh, Brian Bundy and Jeff Krischer developed a couple of years ago called the quantitative response variable. So it takes into account the slope of the C-peptide from the start to the end of the trial for that participant, and it compares it to an expected C-peptide rate of fall by, for people of similar age and similar starting C-peptide level. Um, so it has more uh, data behind that uh, use. So it was developed using six uh, new onset studies and their placebo groups. So definitely has a large population to support that um, variable going forward. And then what this is, is showing what I'd like to think of as like a case study in some of the responder definitions or some of the responder features that have been identified post hoc in these six new onset trials. So this is a B-cell directed therapy in red, rituximab, and the others are all T-cell directed immune therapies in participants who've been newly diagnosed with diabetes and got these immune therapies. They are all showing kind of the main C-peptide outcome. Um, so C-peptide is on the Y-axis and the time of the trial is on the X-axis. And it's really just showing all of them had some preservation transiently in C-peptide. So all of the treatment arms are on the top and all the placebo arms are on the bottom. Um, the, there's a couple nuances between these, the Alephacept in the bottom and the high dose ATG trial in the bottom right didn't actually meet their primary endpoint, but there are, uh, still clinically significant, uh, improvements that we're seeing in both of these groups that help us identify responders. So that's why I show them here. And I'm happy to go over more information about that. If anyone has questions. Um, yeah, if anyone has a question, please uh, send it into the chat or raise your hand and unmute yourself. I had a quick question with those two that didn't seem so um, with the clear results. Mm -hmm. Did they uh, do you, I mean, is it possible that if you had a more um, directed, you know, um, patient cohort that, it, that you might see something more uh, obvious. Yeah. So that is exactly the point. Um, so specifically looking at this high dose ATG trial here, what I'm showing you out to the two year time point here is actually a significant difference between the treated and the placebo, but right. this is a post hoc analysis of just the older individuals in this study. So people were of older age, whereas if you include the entire trial age, it was not significant. So it just didn't benefit younger subjects. Um, and then for the title or the Alephacept study here, they um, 
they used an abbreviated two hour mixed meal tolerance test. Um, and that was not significant as their primary outcome, but a four hour, a longer mixed meal tolerance test was. So there's still a benefit seen um, from that trial. It just depends on what, what outcome measure you're looking at. So that's so more evidence really for um, <clears throat> targeted cohorts. Yes. And again, we, we talked about this before. You don't want to make the cohort so small that you have no one to enroll in the trial. But if you could say, you know, children and adolescents versus 20 and 30 year olds, you know, that at least is two groups that could have different responses. Yeah. Um, and specifically, I show here age. So this is showing if just for these six trials that I showed on the previous slide, in addition to the teplizumab prevention study, which I have listed on the top, these are just the ages of the participants. So the distribution of age of the people enrolled in these trials. All right. So you can kind of see some trials to plizumab are treated in younger, you know, have more younger children. Um, but the prevention study also had outliers here that were much older. So it just gives you a sense of the distribution of age across these different trials. And the reason I show that is because we found, and by we, I mean the wonderful people who did all these trials, um, found that in post-hoc analyses in these top three, so teplizumab, abatacept, and rituximab, that if you were younger, you responded better to these therapies. So and is that like 10 and under? Or so it's, it's not a cutoff because it's all on a continuum mm. um, between. So you'd have to look at that individually for each trial. So I, that's why I didn't put it because I think it's too... I think it's too right. hard to get a cutoff. Yeah. Um, but that's what that's what further studies will need to do. But if this is a signal we see, it's something we should look for in future trials. Right. You also can see when you look at these two therapies here, so these are both including antithymocyte globulin or ATG, which is a T-cell directed therapy, that if you were older in those trials, you responded better. Now you could still be young and respond, but there is a significantly more uh, C-peptide preservation if you were older. So how might this relate to what's going on in the pancreas? So I'd like to show this study from Pialid at Exeter where you see the, um, I have it labeled here, this is a group of um, organ donors. So we take organ donors um, who've passed away and donated their pancreas for research. And you've looked in the pancreas of type one diabetes to determine what types of immune cells are infiltrating the pancreas. And in those um, people who had been diagnosed at a young age, so under the age of six with type one diabetes, they had a lot more B cells in their pancreas than people who were older. If you were older, when you were diagnosed, you had more of a T cell infiltrate. The reason I think that's interesting and deserves further evaluation is this therapy right here, rituximab, oops, I'm not pointing on my screen. Rituximab is a B cell depleting or specific therapy. So maybe people were younger who responded to rituximab because it's getting rid of the main infiltrating uh, immune cell, which is B cells. So again, this needs further validation, but I think it is enough information that we should go further in exploring this. Because if you just could use age to differentiate a drug um, preference, I think that would uh, help a lot, right? In advising other um, clinicians and families. So how might the mechanism of how these drugs work be related to the uh, response to a specific drug? So I show just two examples here. So abatacept or abatacept, depending on how you want to say it, um, is inhibiting the co-stimulation or activation of um, naive T cells here. So you end up 
not having memory T cells that are specific to the pancreas identified. So what that's shown when you do a post-hoc responder analysis of these clinical trials is that you end up with more naive CD4 specific T cells in responders to this study, which makes sense by how this drug works. So it's actually really nice that that's the, those are the responders that we see. Whereas if you give low dose antithymocyte globulin, it's this big soup of antibodies that affect different parts of the T cell. And it ends up actually increasing transiently the activation of T cells before kind of getting rid of the ones that are trying to traffic and get to other places in the pancreas. And so you end up with a decreased um, population of naive CD4 T cells, which this is kind of an, an easy flow cytometric determination between these two that you might be able to use as a potential biomarker going forward. And then this is one I'm uh, very excited about because this is a signature seen across multiple trials. And it's where you find increased amounts of what are called exhausted T cells in people who respond to three different therapies. So we've seen this in three different clinical trials. So exhausted T cells, I like to think about it, are specifically these um, activated or effector T cells that are kind of in there doing the attacking or doing the activating. Um, and if you excessively or repeatedly stimulate them with an antigen or like a self antigen from the pancreas, eventually they lose their destructive ability and they lose their stimulatory ability and they become exhausted. So this is actually a beneficial state to be in because we don't want them to keep fighting <laughs> against the pancreas. Um, and we see different, but, but similar populations of immune cells that are exhausted in the antithymocyte globulin trial, in the teplizumab abate trial, and in the alephacept trial. So all three of these T cell directed therapies all show a beneficial effect after treatment if you can push those cells to become exhausted. So that's a nice marker to look at post-treatment um, where if you get this drug and you don't maybe show this beneficial response, maybe you should switch to another drug because you're not gonna be one of the people that maybe responds to it. So I think this is nice to see across multiple therapies. I can't make out, this is the weeks. What is the time frame for identification of the exhausted cells? Yeah, so it's different in every trial. So we looked at, at three months in ATG, you can see it at three months in teplizumab, um, and then again after the second course is given. And then for alephacept, it's actually way out. It's almost at um, uh, two years. So definitely trying to understand why it's so different. Um, and I think it's just how the, the drugs are acting or how they're, what their mechanism of action is. And in terms of like that actual assay, you know, how easy is it to, you know, get the a number of exhausted T cells out of, uh, you know, the blood? I mean, how much blood do you need? Yeah, so it's not a lot of blood, actually. Um, so, you know, when you get like the tubes of blood, it's not going to be more than a couple tubes to, to do this panel. Now, okay. not, not every lab is going to sit down and run this panel, but it can be something standardized that most uh, research labs, especially in the future, can probably be standardized to do. And I know there is definitely work standardizing T-cell biomarkers in the field. A lot of that's been done by Todd Brusco here at UF and others. Yes. Um, so definitely well, this, an important aspect. This is a shout out to Quest Diagnostics that uh, it's a possible new uh, test for them to be offering in the yeah. future. Look, at, we <laughs> happily talk with them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
So just one other population I bring up, there are other actually cell populations besides T-cells that have been affected and are a potential marker of response to T-cell therapy. So T-cell directed therapies are not just affecting T-cells, they're affecting lots of immune cells around them. So I just wanted to give an example of how neutrophils are affected in some of these trials. Um, so you can see in these two uh, studies, and again, I don't wanna focus on the, the details, so I kind of highlighted it in these boxes here, but genes that are related to the activation of neutrophils. So they get activated, they go through blood vessels, they get to their target organ, um, they are increased. So genes that are activating neutrophils are increased in people who responded to abatacept um, and, and responded to low-dose antithymocyte globulin. Um, so that's shown here as a volcano plot. So all of these genes are upregulated and this is a gene set enrichment um, analysis that's showing neutrophil specific genes are, are very upregulated in responders to those therapies. So there may be even other uh, assays that can be done. Again, this is um, bulk RNA sequencing. So again, it's not something that we're just running out and getting a CBC done, um, but something that depending on cost and how things can be um, multiplexed together, maybe be something that we can add in the future. And then this, I was, um, want to show this summary slide. This is just something I made to look at what I've talked about so far. So if you just look at these six trials that I have listed on the bottom, I show here any, any color trial that's above this horizontal line is a marker that's increased in responders. So older age, um, in these two ATG trials, if it's below the line, then it's decreased in responders. Um, so it's nice to see that there's some overlap, um, between these markers, between different trials, because we want to make this as easy as possible, right, to get the right therapy to the right patient. So if we're identifying these signatures, that is a beneficial state. And I think it's good to keep in mind that exhausted T cells and increased neutrophil activation has also been seen as a favorable immune state to be in to slow the C-peptide decline in general in natural history studies and people who've never received immune therapies before. Um, so it's, it makes sense that these are the people that are responding to a drug. They're the same people that if you have this favorable environment, you are less likely to lose C-peptide in general. And then this slide I just wanna show quickly, I think it's like my second to last slide, um, looking at the antithymocyte, not antithymocyte, globin, the teplizumab um, trial. So let me go back. If you look at this here, this is the teplizumab trial for individuals who were at risk for type one diabetes and teplizumab delayed the onset by a median of about three years um, to type one diabetes onset. And when they looked after the trial, they did find some um, baseline features that may predict who those responders would be. Again, this needs to be validated because it's post, the studies are not powered to look at this, um, but it did show that if you are without ZNT8 antibodies, without HLA-DR3, but with HLA-DR4, which I've summarized in this box on the right, then you may be the person that's gonna have that nine, 10 or 11 year you know, delay in type one um, onset, but we definitely need to validate that more. And then there are three other um, areas that I, I've kind of been interested in. So the um, diameter GAD alum trial is looking at um, predicting responders by HLA-DR3. So they showed that post hoc in a study and they're doing a larger study now. We found in the antithymocyte globulin trial that if you have these senescent or kind of sleeping T cells, that um, that is 
can be a predictor um, if they're low, low in numbers. And then abatacept, if you have less of these helper cells to activate, that is a better state to be in before you get abatacept. So I know that was fast, but that's the summary is that one size doesn't fit all and we need to figure this out by whatever method it's gonna be, whether it's in the lab, um, trying to predict before someone gets an immune therapy so that Sam can have the best idea, or if it's gonna be after you get a treatment, let's evaluate the effectiveness then. Because my goal would be probably for clinicians to have like an app when they get their 15 year old new onset, put the age in, put the you know, couple immune measures they were able to get, and it gives them a list of the most effective <laughs> immune therapies to preserve C-peptide for that patient. That's, um, so that's really a fantastic visual, visual, you know, to think about it like that. I mean, and I think that there's, I think a lot of trainees, you know, fellows, endo fellows and pediatric fellows will, will probably really um, get inspired by this talk. Oh, good. I appreciate that. Uh, well, I'm sorry I went a couple minutes over, but this yeah. is uh, the amazing crew that we work with here at the University of Florida, who I wouldn't be able to do any of this without, um, and also the group at Benaroya, um, who's helped with a lot of these assays. So I'm happy to take other questions. Fantastic. Yeah, open it up to questions. If someone wanted to put something in the chat. I hear, I see someone is here from Anodia. That's fantastic. Um, and uh, don't yes. feel shy. Hi. Hi, Monica. Hi, Manuela. Yes, Manuela. Hi. Hi, Manuela. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Laura. That was very, very interesting investigation. And I think that's really the future for, you know, designing more successful trials. And we need, of course, personalized therapy. We need biomarker development. We need a lot, <laughs> but, I know. Uh, you know, we... Yeah, but you definitely contribute, are contributing a lot to this, you know, yeah. to the future. So congratulations. The, the, the new is based <laughs> off your work, <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. And yeah, every time I see those cells, I get, you know, excited that yeah. at least somebody. <laughs> They're yeah, important. I want, they are. And if I may I ask a question, Monica, I take of the advantage of this. Yeah, I wonder for the neutrophil signature, whether... Um, that is more an enrichment of uh, neutrophil cells uh, because you deplete T cells and then you see those more or you think it's more specific of activation of neutrophils or somehow. That is an excellent question. I, I get asked that a lot, actually. Um, from the <laughs> low-dose ATG trial, we actually adjusted for the uh, change in neutrophil count um, with it. So it actually seems to be irrespective of the uh, total amount of neutrophils. So while I think there is an aspect of these are these cells are expanded, especially after getting like a pre-medication with methylprednisolone, it lasts longer and is can be adjusted for to where you still see a neutrophil gene signature with like myeloperoxidase and other um, transcription factors that I think are more activating. So I, I feel pretty confident that there is a function of activation, not just uh, the percentage. Just numbers. Okay, mm -hmm. thanks. And that I think fits with, you know, the concept that when you have lower neutrophils, you're at higher risk to become, you know, our hypothesis, yes, that the lower they are, the higher the risk. So yeah, it would be great to understand the mechanism behind that, but- <laughs> Someday, <laughs> someday. Get there. Yes, yes. Um, you know, in Nadia, Trialnet, all these networks, you know, very well are really, you know, trying to accelerate the development of therapies and all these notions and ideas. 
and knowledge are really very, very important. So thank you. And thanks, Monica, for organizing these webinars. Yeah. One more example of that, uh, it takes a scientific village mm -hmm. to attack these complex diseases. Yep. Okay, last call for any questions. Thank you, Manuela, that was great. Um, okay, well, this can be viewed on our um, website and um, we hope you all have a great rest of the day.